It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Dana Perino, and this is Perino on Politics. Saturday's Republican primary fast approaches. Will former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley have home field advantage or will this be her second to last dance before Super Tuesday? Welcome to Perino on Politics, where we give you everything you need to know from a 30,000 foot view of this week in politics. Joining me now is a friend of mine that I read all day long, every day, because his work is incredible and he is prolific. And we're going to find out how he actually churns out so much excellent content. He is a senior writer for the National Review, Noah Rothman. He has authored some wonderful books, including The Rise of the Puritans and Unjust, so you can check out those books as well. Noah, thank you for being here. And tell us before we get started about another new project you have underway. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. Yes, I'm, I'm hosting a show. It's called Issues with Noah Rothman. So you may have some issues with Noah <laughs> Rothman. I was going to say, <laughs> that, could go, that could go a lot of different directions. It's a double entendre. If you like it, you know. if you don't, it's built in there for you. You have a built-in excuse. But yes, we talk about the issues of the day and the things that really uh, frustrate me, fascinate me with uh, a panel of guests. And uh, if you join us for a live taping, there is some audience engagement. Uh, and how do they find it? Uh, they can find it on two-way, but the, the it's a soft launch right now. So you will mostly see it after the fact. But we're going yeah. to be build, we're going to be building it out over the next. Well, congratulations on that, Thank and I, I mean I don't, really don't know how you have the time, but I know you have the brain. So let's catch up, everybody. We have this is Monday, President's Day. Happy President's Day, everyone. The South Carolina primary is on Saturday, and no, I'm just looking at the numbers. The real clear politics average is that President Trump's lead over Nikki Haley in her home state is 31 percent. She says she continues on regardless. How do you see this South Carolina situation? Well, she'll carry on in this race as long as she has the money to do so. Uh, and South Carolina's results will probably be determinative, uh, determinative about how she can continue to fundraise. She has to be hoping for something like a profound polling error, but the scale of the polling error we would have to see in order for her to be competitive would be historic. So that's probably unlikely. Nevertheless, it's her home state. Uh, it's an open primary. Democrats and independents can vote. Uh, we've seen few indications that they are as engaged as they were in New Hampshire, but New Hampshire demonstrated that she can count on polling, perhaps underestimating her performance on Election Day, just not to the scale that she needs to defeat Donald mm -hmm. Trump. So the question is, how far behind is she at the end of the day? If it's a 20 point deficit, 25 point deficit, 30 point deficit, it'll be pretty disappointing for her campaign. And I don't know how she continues to raise money with those numbers. Mm -hmm. She can, perhaps. But she'd be going into Super Tuesday, which is essentially the equivalent of a national primary. It happens across the country simultaneously. Not a lot of spending to, to up her ID and to chip into Donald Trump's uh, chip into Donald Trump's uh, prestige among Republican voters. So that's probably the end of her campaign. Whether she makes it there is an open question. Right. But she does seem inclined to make it there. Yeah, it's been interesting. You know, something happened over the weekend that I wasn't planning on bringing up, but I'm sure you saw it because I know that you and I are always on X and looking at things. This producer from The Blaze was out really harassing some female volunteers that were supporting Nikki Haley, um, asking them if they had OnlyFans accounts, really insulting them and harassing them. 
and humiliating them. And I thought, why are you doing this? I understand you support President Trump. Great. She's going to lose South Carolina and the March 5th, Super Tuesday. And losing in your home state, that's not comfortable, right? But it, it happens, right? Uh, it, you know, Al Gore lost his home state as well during those elections. But um, I sort of look at that from the Republican far right going after her supporters thinking, why would you do that? If President Trump wants to win the election and you want to help him do that, shouldn't you just back off and let these young women do what they want to do and then maybe make the decision that they want to unite behind the Republican candidate? So my thought while I was watching that display was that obviously this individual set out to be entertaining at the very least, but it wasn't funny. No, it wasn't clever. It wasn't cute. And it certainly wasn't entertaining. Right. It was just, it was a, just gross. A, an embarrassing spectacle in which mm-hmm. he, uh, he made of himself uh, using really crass language and being a very foul individual. And yeah, what is that advance? Uh, even if you're not trying to advance Donald Trump's political prospects, he doesn't really need your help. But right. it, doesn't advance, it doesn't advance your personal brand. And, and if we assume it does, we have to think about the assumptions that go into that. What did, what did he think he was accomplishing or achieving by making himself into this the most obnoxious version of himself possible? Mm-hmm. And I think there is a real, uh, and I do think it's mostly a, a misjudgment, but it's not entirely unfounded, a perception uh, on the right, particularly in the Trump era, that being churlish and obnoxious and just recalcitrant, utterly unmoved by human sentiment and emotion, that those are marks of strength. The alternative is, is somehow weak to present yourself as a human being capable of being rational and civil and, and finding yourself in mixed company and not coming off like a total jerk. Yep. Like there's something on the right that assumes jerkishness advances the ball advances if not donald trump's cause then your own makes it makes yourself gives yourself a higher profile but also like sometimes i don't understand it people might think well president trump can can be like that right they'll say like well he fights yes but he has charm and he actually can make people laugh and even if it's a laugh at somebody else's expense he has finesse and i don't think he ever would have condoned such behavior so you're right like he doesn't need your help on that front and Mm -hmm. and if you want to help him don't hurt him uh one last question on Trump before we go to the Biden campaign, and that is, you know, this judgment out of New York of $355 million fine for a victimless crime, though I understand, as Trey Gowdy reminded me, you still prosecute crimes even if the victim is not harmed. For example, mentioning drug cases. And I thought, okay, that's a good point. But I think the Democrats don't realize that these kinds of judgments fuel support for President Trump rather than pull it away. Well, they certainly do among his supporters. So we haven't had really any polling around the civil fraud judgments that he's that Donald Trump has been experiencing uh, or has been uh, on the receiving end of recently. But we do have polling around the criminal charges and they're really static as far as what we've seen between for YouGov polling from December to now, early February. Uh, Republicans roughly believe that these charges are unfair and have been unfairly prosecuted, roughly 70-20. It's the mirror image among Democrats. Roughly 10% think Donald Trump has been treated unfairly. Everybody else on the Democratic side is is convinced that these are wholly justified verdicts. And independents are split. 30% think it's unfair. 40% think it's not. 
And none of that has moved over the course, despite, you know, environmental conditions changing wildly. This opinion has not changed at all. Uh, so I'm hesitant to judge uh, these verdicts as harbingers of some sort of epochal shift among the mm-hmm. among voters within the electorate. They seem to have been relatively priced in. Right. Uh, as right, far right, as well, right. this particular verdict, like the scale of this verdict. Yeah. He'll have the opportunity to appeal. And it is really large. I mean, it's designed to be. Pro, pro, to prohibit Donald Trump from doing to, from doing the kind of conduct that he that Judge uh, Endrigan decided that he was was untoward. So he said in the sentencing, or, or, or dropping down his verdict, that quote, "their complete there being the defendants, Donald Trump and his sons, their complete lack of contrition and remorse borders on pathological." Quote, defendants are incapable of admitting the error of their ways. Now, obviously, they wouldn't admit the errors of their ways if they believed themselves <laughs> to be innocent. Right. Nevertheless. A judge is at liberty to hand down really excessive verdicts that mm-hmm. might be overturned on appeal just by virtue of the conduct of the defendants in court. Yeah. That is not unusual or unreasonable. Um, so while this might energize Republicans, everybody else who isn't on board isn't necessarily going to come to the same conclusion. Yeah, I, I have to say, I, I cover this stuff every day. I, it is very hard for me to keep the threads all together on all the different court cases. It's very confusing. So just um, stick voters. around for the end. Yeah, not let alone people who are just trying to r- live normal and wonderful lives where they don't have to think about this stuff all the time. I want to ask you about the Biden campaign because I felt that the Robert Hur report was really a turning point. And this is the report about that it was a special he's a special counsel and he's the one who said Joe Biden will not be charged for the crime of having these illegal classified documents in his possession he said there wasn't enough evidence for that but he also said in addition to that even if we were to bring charges the jury would see him as such a sympathetic character as an old man with a poor memory that we couldn't bring the case so fast forward then you had over the weekend I thought pretty remarkable how many Democrats are now saying out loud what was being whispered about before, which is concerns about President Biden's age and and abilities. You had um, Charlemagne the God, who is a popular DJ, go on a Sunday show to express his concern. Now, it's not like he likes the Republicans at all. And if you listen to the full interview, he was quite damning to, to them as well. But in addition to that, you had Ezra Klein who used to be with the New York Times, or maybe is he still? No, he's with Fox. And he has quite a big platform for Democrats. And he was saying that Biden should step down. What do you think of people who still imagine that Biden is going to either step down or ultimately won't be the nominee? Well, I sympathize with them, but I frankly think it's too late. Um, the opportunity to do this, to to seamlessly transition Joe Biden out of the role would have been years ago, probably after the 2022 midterms. Um, I was always of the impression since 2021 that Joe Biden would be the Democratic nominee for two reasons. One, because the parties are too weak. They're they're incapable of muscling an incumbent out and and overcoming their historical memory, the sort of institutional memory of what happens to parties that sacrifice their incumbents. It's usually not very good. So the just the the forces arrayed against extirpating Joe Biden from his situation. Plus, on top of that, Kamala Harris is a rather dis- approves, performs dismally in polling. But the circumstances are changing radically beneath our feet mm-hmm. with this increased number of Democrats who are coming out and giving voice to the apprehensions they probably held all along. They right. just now feel like they have a safe harbor. And it's created this sort of perhaps rationalization on their parts. But one I find convincing 
that maybe Democrats would be better off with Kamala Harris. Like, think about it. Think about what would happen the day after Joe Biden def- defers. He would have to resign. He wouldn't. There's no way to force him out. Even, even the, notion, the notion that the convention would somehow uh, you know, devolve in some, into some sort of a fractious uh, internecine feud over how to get Joe Biden out of the role. That's just fantastical. He would have to abdicate. And, but if he abdicated, what would the media environment look like for in the, the next week at least? I mean, Kamala Harris would go to work demolishing all the the, the false praise that she would be you know, adorned with, but she would be festooned with praise for her historic presidential nomination, the, the potential history that she would be making as the first female president, and all the enthusiasm that Democrats lack for Joe Biden would be artificially created for Kamala Harris. Would it last? Probably not, because she would open her mouth rather quickly and disabuse everyone of the notion that she was the figure that she had been made into by the press in their effort to build her up. But they would try to build her up, and it would shake up the dynamic of this race significantly. If Joe Biden's biggest liability is his age, and it is, and Donald Trump has a liability in his age, though it's not his biggest liability, that would neutralize a big problem for Democrats right away. Again, I don't see this happening. I know, but it's fun to think about. But it is fun to think about. (laughs) It is. Okay, with that, we will have more Perino on politics coming right up. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. And we're back with Perino on politics. Noah, I want to discuss a couple of things that are happening with the Congress. They are out for recess because, you know, they got to have some time off. Look, I don't mind when Congress is out because that means they're not necessarily screwing anything up. But there's a lot of things out there right now. One of them is foreign aid. The other is dealing with the border. And a friend of ours, Matthew Continetti, who uh, you can hear on the commentary podcast, and I listen to that every day, he had a column that said to the speaker, Mike Johnson, let them vote and let's get everybody on the record rather than saying, I'm not going to hold this bill up for a vote because I don't want the consequences of it or I don't like the possible outcome of it. Continetti is saying, let's get everybody on the record. What do you think of that? Well, I think it would be a valuable exercise insofar as it would allow passage of this uh, Senate supplemental bill that was stripped of the border provisions, which is essentially an American rearmament bill. It's sort of a misnomer to call it a foreign aid bill. I, that's a huge mistake. You're aid. right. You're right. When you hear foreign aid, you mm-hmm. think, oh, we're shipping pallets of cash abroad. Um, and there is money in for in the Ukraine side for Ukraine's government to stay open, uh, which is a valuable enterprise if we're trying to arm and, and support this the government in Ukraine. We do kind of want it to keep the lights on. Nevertheless, most of that money never leaves the country. Um, both in when it comes to Israel funding, Taiwan funding, Ukraine funding, the vast majority of those funds are devoted to either uh, low interest loans to or, or low interest payments to allow them to purchase our arms or just to rebuild our own stockpiles, which have been depleted uh, amid a growing a deteriorating security environment abroad. So those are very, very valuable to pass. Um, and if it was put to the floor, I suspect it would be a 300, 350 vote proposition. There would be a lot of Republican defections, but most Democrats would vote for it, and Mm -hmm. most of the Republican conference would vote for it. The problem is that a lot of Democrats would vote for it, and you'd have the narrative hung around Speaker Johnson's neck that he abandoned his conference and allowed this to pass with Democratic votes. And that might be the end of his speakership. Certainly, there would be motions to vacate. Marjorie Mm -hmm. Taylor Greene is among the among the Republicans who have said they would go right away towards a motion to vacate the speakership Mm -hmm. again. Uh, So it requires a lot of 
courage on the part of Mike Johnson to be willing to put his career on the line for this cause. And he's only been in the position for four months? Roughly, I think, yeah, yeah that's thereabouts. But <laughs> It just probably feels we, like four years for him. Have we seen that kind of courage? Uh-huh. Have we seen any indication that Mike Johnson is willing to put his speakership on I don't on really the know what the Ukraine? strategy is. I think that, in a way, it's like he's shown that he can hold on for now. Um, what do you think happens to the impeachment efforts of the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and President Biden in this moment? Well, there are, the votes do not exist to impeach President Biden right now. I think we can probably say that with a lot of security in that conclusion. The votes barely existed to impeach Secretary Mayorkas. It passed only by one after having failed the first time around. I mean, not even the entirety of the Republican conference is on board with this strategy, although most are. Uh, so I don't suspect that it would go very far at all. I mean, this it's in the Senate's the, the impeachment strategy for uh, Secretary Mayorkas is in the Senate's court right now. And we've seen indications they're going to go through a perfunctory trial. They might try to seek to just dismiss dismiss the, the charges entirely. But a perfunctory trial is most likely, at which point it will be dismissed right. afterwards. There's no mystery as to where this is going. It's a political messaging strategy. And as a political messaging strategy, it might be effective. However, Republicans are banking a lot on the border. And I think it is perhaps ill-advised to assume that this crisis that Joe Biden has created and presided over will persist into November. One of the things that he's been doing recently, in fact, earlier before this vote, is actually getting serious about the border by doing a lot of the things he said he never had the power to do. He's, He's communicating with his Mexican counterparts to compel them to police their side of the Rio, which has had measurable impact, a measurable impact on encounters along the border. He's restarted deportation flights with Venezuela. There's a report in Axios today that suggests he's willing to implement some of the executive orders that he's been otherwise reluctant to implement. And he would do that right before his State of the Union address, which is scheduled for March 7th. But who couldn't see this coming? Right. That Joe Biden was just being lethargic as an executive up until the time at which it became an untenable position. Now, all of a sudden, he's being energetic. That should have been foreseeable that if this was such an existential crisis and all that would be required to alleviate it is some action on his part that he would at least take that action. Second, we had this uh, special election in New York, New York three, where a Democratic congressman uh, took the seat formerly occupied by George Santos to beat his, his Republican opponent by eight points, much out, way outside what the polls were suggesting. And one of the ways he neutralized his the liability around Joe Biden's handling of the border, which was a big issue in this race, was just to talk tough. Is that all it takes? Right. Really? Just a little rhetorical toughness can neutralize what is supposed to be an existential threat to Democratic political prospects? Honestly, Republicans, if that is what you're facing, then you've got a real problem on your hands. Yeah, indeed. Okay, um, that's on that. I want to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And we are back with more Perino on politics. Noah, before I ask you my last question, I just want to find out, how do you keep up to speed on so much and produce so much incredible content on National Review and elsewhere. And, and I like following you on X as well, which sometimes leads me back to National Review, which I um, visit several times a day. It's a very impressive. I know I read a lot. Uh, you must read a lot, but you also write a lot. Thank you very much. That's a very generous uh, assessment of my output. Um, yeah, I, I, I read a lot, but I, I like I prefer to read more. 
Mm-hmm. I, I really feel like I don't have the opportunity to get my hands around, you know, the, the contours of every issue before I have to put my opinion out there and my thoughts out there. So I'm hoping they're as well informed as possible. But I would like to read much more than I get the opportunity to. The the process is if I have if I were to tweet more than two things, two two or three tweets on a subject, then I'm just I'm stealing from my employer. And I should probably be contributing those thoughts instead of this, to this free website than to National Review. And I find I have at least two or three things that irritate me per day. <laughs> I feel like it was, uh, it might have been George Will, I'm not sure who, uh, but was getting advice about how to write a weekly column. And it was like, just find something that annoys you uh, once a week, once or twice a week, right? Well, the the annoyances are coming fast and furious now, so we're we're not at uh, not in a deficit of things to. I love uh, it. To be you know, I about. I wake up every day feeling like I know less than I did the day before, and then I'm always <laughs> in like a constant race to try to learn more, and and that's actually something that I love to do, and, and I love I love having a chance also to have these conversations with friends of mine, because I feel like the listener is getting a chance to hear. What you and I would be talking about anyway, I, you and I often email, so it's not always by phone, but it's a way for us to just bounce ideas off each other. Like, did you see this? Oh my gosh, I can't believe he said that, etc. So the last question I have for you is one that I ask all of my guests is, what am I missing? What are you paying attention to that I might not have on my radar? So I think I'll be writing about this today. So I do the editor's podcast, the National Review, and Rich Lowry poses, often poses to us, uh, my editor, Rich Lowry is the head of National Review, poses existential questions of great import that you couldn't possibly know the answer to, but like really wants to get you on the record early. And one of them that he asks with some regularity is, what are Donald Trump's chances in the 2024 election? And I usually defer to my assumption that it's going to be tough sledding for Donald Trump. I think he's behind the eight ball for a couple of reasons. One is that campaigns matter and he's going to be underfunded and he's going to spend the majority of the campaign defending against his criminal allegations, which enthuse Republicans and no one else. Two is that he's got a tough task ahead of him. He has to do one of two things, either convince voters who voted against him to vote for him, which is a very high psychological hurdle to overcome. Once you've voted against somebody, you're unlikely to do the opposite or remake the electorate get a lot, a lot of voters who don't normally vote to turn out and vote for him. And with the presence of on the ballot of people like um, RFK Jr., who, demons, who, who represent a bigger, uh, a bigger opportunity to shake up the system, those detached voters are probably more going to gravitate towards that than they would Donald Trump. That all being said, I'm going to explore my priors, I think in a post later today. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong because the Democrats' math makes no sense. If you actually look at the electorate as what the polling is telling us about what the general electorate will look like in 2024, it suggests that the Democratic Party is an increasingly a party made up of degree holders, that they're shedding support among Americans who are working class, some college and uh, and less. And that's the majority of the electorate. College degree holders is a minority of this electorate, and increasingly being a college-educated American means voting Democratic. But the opposite is also true. Coalitions are like water balloons. You push down on one end, and the other end goes up. Mm-hmm. And are pushing down right now on non-college, non-degree-holding Americans. And if they turn out in the numbers that they suggest they will to register their dissatisfaction with Democrats, then no one should be surprised about what happens in mm-hmm. November, because the math is staring us in the face. They're maximizing 
doubling down on getting out the vote among degree-holding Americans at the expense of everybody else, and there are just not enough of them. I love it. Interesting. I look forward to reading that. Hey, before I let you go, we have one quick thing. It's a pop quiz, but it's multiple choice, and if you get it wrong, there's no penalty. (laughs) But I bet you get it right. The question is this. Members of the first family are assigned a code name for Secret Service agents to use while they're in office. Which president was the first to be assigned a code name? Was it Lyndon Johnson, Woodrow Wilson, or Harry Truman? Wow, that's a good one. I don't know the answer. How would anybody know this? I don't even know. Truman. Oh, you got it right. (laughs) I knew it. (laughs) That was just based on when the Secret Service was was in place. Well, this is why, you know, if you know stuff, you get pop quizzes correct. Harry Truman's code name was General. And Sunnyside was the code name used for his wife, Bess, which that's a lovely one. I, my code name, and I think the code name for all the press secretaries is Matrix. Um, that's pretty cool. That's a good one. That's extremely cool. I think actually. that was actually even before the movies. <laughs> I'm not exactly positive. All right, Noah Rothman, we will catch you on the Editor's Podcast and everywhere else that you appear. Thanks for being on Perino on Politics, and we'll see you guys next week. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.